0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are now in the concluding section of this sermon where Jesus continues to give warnings and contrasts, the narrow way, the broad way, good fruit, bad fruit, building your house on the rock and on the sand, and He drives really the main point of His message home to say, we need to... Um, make sure that we are not blown off course or self-deceived in the midst of this message that He is giving us. I'm going to read the passage for us. It's Matthew 7, verses 15, excuse me, to 20, and this is the Word of the Lord. Matthew 7, verse 15, "'Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves.'" by their fruits. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, You have given us this Word through Your Son. It is a command for all of us to be on guard, to beware of false prophets, false teachers, who we are warned throughout Scripture will be many. There will be many false prophets and many false teachers, and so God, I pray that You would give us discernment, that You would help us to see the true from the false, the genuine from the counterfeit, and God, I pray that we would not be deceived, naive, gullible to the teachings of those who do not truly know You but claim to represent You, to those who distort your truth, and lead people astray down the broad road that leads to destruction. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the plan for this Sunday and for next Sunday is to spend both of those weeks on this particular passage. Uh, There is a lot to cover. Uh, My goodness, there's just so many texts of Scripture that are relevant to all of this I'll just be honest with you, I'm not even sure I'm going to finish this sermon. I have uh, fourteen marks of a false prophet, and I'm not even necessarily committed to finishing it because I've got next Sunday to finish that, and at list may be sixteen by next Sunday. I'm not sure. There's a lot of things that we can look for and to be warned about from false teachers and false prophets. Before we get too far down that road, I don't want us to get lost in all of those points, let me just start with something very basic. It's not all that needs to be said. My goodness, it's not all that needs to be said. But if you're looking for a true teacher, uh, whether it's a book you're reading, a pastor you listen to, a podcast that you happen to enjoy, here are some things to be looking for for a true teacher. You want this person to present sin, and I mean sin. My personal sin, your personal sin, and real sin, things that the Bible actually deems sinful, not just what the culture might say, what the Bible deems as my personal sin, that must be the number one enemy in true teaching, my personal sin as defined by Scripture. Number two, real repentance from sin and real genuine faith in Christ is the way forward. It's the, it's the narrow way. Real repentance of sin. A, you understand, repentance is an actual distaste for the things that displease God that leads to a turning from them. It, it is a revulsion of the things that dishonor God, and it is a turning to Christ as superior and better. And number three, they present the real and biblical Jesus as the goal of the Christian life. Not another Jesus. Not a distorted Jesus. Not a culturally vetted, culturally edited, culturally approved, false Jesus. The Jesus of God's Word. And if God's Word is presenting us with a true Jesus, true understanding of sin, true understanding of repentance, true understanding of faith in Christ. That is a wonderful mark that they are understanding the basics of the gospel. Let me say one more thing. We'll get to more of these as we go. Do they present at the heart of the gospel this truth? That when Jesus died on the cross, you know, you ever been maybe at a place? I mean, I heard one time of a youth event not too far from here. I remember watching it online. And the speaker said to hundreds of students from this area, the speaker, uh, she said that the cross is proof of how worthwhile you were to God. The, The cross is the measurement of your worth. You were worth so much to God. You were so valuable in God's sight and in God's eyes that Jesus was willing to give His life for you. And if you pay a lot for something, you must think that thing is worth a lot. And for Jesus to give His very self for you, that must mean you are worth so much. I'm sorry. That is a distortion of the biblical truth. The mark of the true gospel is when someone presents that we actually are worthy. Yes, we are. We are worthy in the gospel. You know what? We are worthy of the eternal wrath of God. We are worthy of condemnation. We are worthy of being abandoned forever, eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord. That's what we are worthy of. And yet, God loves sinners anyway. And God sent His Son to rescue us from ourselves. Those are marks of authentic teaching. I want you to turn with me to Titus, to your right. Titus chapter 1, these pastoral epistles, as they've been called, Titus chapter 1, you have here in this text a description of of what an elder or a pastor or an overseer should be, I say frequently that in the New Testament, those three words, elder, pastor, and overseer, refer to the same office. They, they are not distinguished in any... They have, they have different nuances, but they refer to the same office. And so let's see here a description of a pastor or elder of a church. I just want to look at a couple things. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to the younger his younger protege, Titus... Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, that's the island of Crete, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he describes an elder with several characteristics, but I want to look at the last, near the end here, look at verse 9. He, this is the true elder or the teacher, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to do two things. Number one, give instruction in sound doctrine. That's the positive. Give instruction in sound doctrine. Here's the negative. And two, also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, do you hear that? This is the biblical call for a shepherd. The shepherd must be able to teach what is healthy, sound doctrine, And a requirement for a pastor. This is not an option. You must be able to rebuke those who contradict the healthy and sound teaching. And I know we live in such a tolerance-obsessed culture that to even say that may sound strange, but look at the very next verse. Verse 10 gives the reason. For, because, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, And the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, you could turn back with me to Matthew chapter 7. I've got a lot of cross-references today. You can choose to follow me or not, depending on how quickly you want to turn to different places, but back to Matthew 7 for the time being. Let's reread our text for today. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, I'm going to begin walking through 14 marks of a false prophet. Here is mark number one. Let me just tell you how I compiled this list in case you are curious, okay? So, here's what I did. I cross-referenced in Google. I mean, I I didn't use Google. I cross-referenced in Word Search, and I looked up every verse I could pretty much find. There's, There's many more on false prophets and false teachers in the Bible. And I compiled this long list, and I read through the list, and I started thinking, okay, what are the common themes I see amongst the false teachers throughout the whole Bible? And I started putting them under subheadings, and I collected the subheadings, and that's how I got 14 different characteristics of a false teacher. So I got this just straight from the Bible. Uh, That's where this came from. So, uh, number one, 14 marks of a false prophet, number one. And, And let me just, before I go too far here... False prophet and false teacher I'm going to use almost interchangeably because 2 Peter 2, 1 says, just as there were false prophets among the people, so there will be false teachers among you. So Peter puts those two categories very close together, and I'm going to continue to do so, although they can be distinguished. Mark number one, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Jesus does not say beware of the false prophets who come to you in wolf's clothing. This is not a wolf in wolf's clothing, as I've heard a friend of mine one time say. Uh, That's not what he does here. They don't come to you looking like a wolf. They don't come to you showing their teeth. In fact, just the opposite. We will see in a moment that false teachers often, often look very polite and likable and friendly, and they could be teaching you things that are wolf-like. So, Jesus doesn't If it was obvious, he wouldn't have to warn us. If a wolf comes up to you as a sheep, you know to get away. You know to to flee. But Jesus says, no, beware. There are false prophets who disguise themselves to look like innocent sheep. And yet underneath, they are ravenous wolves, so we must beware. I want you to turn to the right to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, I'm going to start in verse 13. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. Paul speaks of false teachers who were trying to discredit Paul. 2 Corinthians 11:13. 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself. "...as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds." Now, now do you hear that? My first point, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They look like sheep or they look like good, caring shepherds. They say a lot of the right Christianese terms They sound like they got the lingo down. They can can beguile you and, and trick you and deceive you if you're not paying close attention. And it says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan doesn't come with the pitchfork and the red horns. That's not how Satan normally tries to show up. Satan comes looking like an angel of light, and his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you appear outwardly righteous to others, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. All right, point number two. They reject the narrow way. Marks of a false prophet. They reject the narrow way. And you won't have time maybe to turn, but listen to this Matthew 24, verse 11. And many false prophets will arise. This is Jesus predicting the future. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And do you hear that? Many false prophets leading many astray. The love for Christ is going to grow cold And what's going to happen? Only those who persevere on the narrow path, those who endure to the end, only they will be saved because the false prophets reject that way. Listen to this from Isaiah 30, verse 9. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children, now listen, this is, okay, don't want to to get lost here. Isaiah is rebuking the people of Israel generally because of their desires. Now listen to what he says about the people generally because it connects to the false teaching for they are rebellious people, lying children, children, now listen, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. So, it says, who say to the seers, that's the prophets, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, pleasing things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way Turn aside from the path, that's the narrow way in the New Testament way of speaking, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Do you hear that? The false prophets, they reject the narrow way. They open the door to wandering off God's path. They don't want to promote the holiness of the Holy One of Israel. And this comes because people are unwilling to hear their instruction. Number three, this goes along with that. Number three, they sound attractive to our flesh, the false prophets. They sound attractive to our flesh. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons Do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Through smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. A false teacher is going to look attractive. The false teacher is going to speak in a way that is smooth. He is going to flatter you. Well what could that look like? He may not tell you about the sinfulness of your sin. Because that doesn't feel great to our flesh. He may affirm you. He may speak highly of you. One very famous pastor in America, extraordinarily famous, you can't get more famous than this individual, has said in interviews, "I don't talk much about sin in my preaching." Because I think people already have enough negative thoughts of themselves. I want to lift people up when they come to church. I don't want to tear them down. Now, listen, I don't want to ultimately tear people down. But my goodness, if I'm walking around thinking I'm a pretty decent person, I need to be torn down by God's law, exposing my sin, so that I can be built back up in Christ in a whole new way of living. The same pastor said, My goal is to take people of all faiths and walks of life, He mentioned Muslims and others. I just want all people who come to my church to leave with a better life. I said, well, I do too. But how is that going to happen? It must come through repentance of sin, forsaking false religion, and trusting in the saving plan of God in Christ Himself. 2 Timothy 4, it's just a tremendous text. Remember that amazing text? Paul says, I charge you. This is The last chapter Paul ever wrote that we know of, 2 Timothy 4. Paul's about to have his head removed in prison in Rome. Paul's pinning the last words, at least his last inspired words that we we have, his last words. And he says to young pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the the dead, he says, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and when it's not, preach the Word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you understand that false teaching sounds attractive to our flesh? That's a telltale sign that the teaching is suspect. If your flesh is going, I like this. This affirms me. This makes my self-esteem go up. Warning flags should start going off in your mind at that point. Whenever the teaching brings God's holiness down and takes human uh, ingenuity and, and hu- human skill and rises it up, you know you're, 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 you're in trouble, right? But when the teaching makes God's holiness rise and our sinfulness go down, we know that we're heading in the right direction. But do you hear this? Accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They have itching ears, and they're saying, tell us what we want to hear. Please tell us what we want to hear. I know a lot of your stories, how you came to know Christ. How many of you, maybe you thought you were a believer when you were younger and you were not truly converted yet, it's a lot of you. Maybe you were radically converted later in life, or maybe you were truly converted at a young age, but whatever might be true of you, you probably know what it's like to hear solid biblical teaching as an unbeliever and then to hear it when you're actually born again. Have you had that experience? Hearing the Word taught truly as an unregenerate person, it is the most boring, mind-numbing, intolerable experience in the world. You, you, you can't take it. Just, why are we wasting our time sitting here listening to this stuff? There is there's stuff to do out there. Why are we wasting our time? And you just feel that, that, that just endless boredom or just offense You say, I can't believe we're talking about sin again. Why do I need to hear this? Why do I need to hear about all this stuff about Jesus being the only way and heaven and hell? And this is just, come on, tell me something that's actually practical for my life. As if those things are not the most important things or most practical things. And so, I mean, if you're an unregenerate church person, you're going to buy the books that tell you what you want to hear. And this is frankly why the best-selling Christian books are often not really Christian books. I visited a used bookstore in the area. I won't say where. It doesn't matter where it was. Hadn't been in a real bookstore in a while to see real books in person. I'm used to, like, Amazon or something. So it was great. I I think I start salivating when I go. So I I, I like the bookstore. I go over there, found the Christian section. It was a whole wall of books all the way down from one end of the store to the other. The lady there said, okay, these are all the uh, Christian fiction is down here. Christian nonfiction is here. It's about split in the middle. So I had about 10 minutes free, no kids with me. I was just looking around the books, about 10 minutes and I'm not trying to sound harsh. I'm not trying to sound like anything. I, was, I wanted there to be good books. I, was, I, was, I, was, I bought a few good books. I kid you not, about 10 minutes, I looked at several hundred books very quickly. You know how it is, right? You're scanning through, scanning through. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning down at the, the bottom row. I'm looking up at the top. I can barely reach. It. I'm looking at these books. I was, I was genuinely sad when I left. I'm looking at this, hundreds of Christian books I would say easily, easily 90% of them would have been better off in the garbage behind the store. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be cute. There, 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 were, there were all the stuff, you know, the Joyce Myers and the Joel Osteens and the T.D. Jakes. They were everywhere. Everywhere you look is all this prosperity theology. And then you've got even people who may not be heretics, but the books are still not great. And there's, there's a handful of really good books there. But you just see dominating the Christian book section is just... Not healthy stuff. I mean, even, even stuff that wasn't heretical, how healthy was it? How biblically saturated was it? It's, it's sad. It's, it's sad to see that. It is not hard to accumulate for ourselves what we want to hear, but is it actually the biblical truth? Point number four, false prophets, they are often popular. In Luke six twenty six, you know this verse, don't you? Woe to you, Jesus said, when all men speak well of you. Remember the end of the verse? for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, the popular prophets in the Old Testament were not Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? You you go look at it. Jeremiah prophesied the truth. He was thrown into a pit. He was nearly killed. But the true prophets at that time, they were celebrated. They were loved. Jeremiah 14, listen to this. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets, these are the false prophets, say to them, the people, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That sounds great, doesn't it? The false prophets, you know what they kept saying in Jeremiah? Peace, peace. Shalom, shalom, when there is no peace. Remember Jeremiah, he's sitting there in the walls of the city. The Babylonians have come and laid siege people are beginning to starve. Jeremiah is the true prophet. There are no doubt many dozens, if not hundreds of false prophets. Jeremiah is the lone voice, it seems, speaking the truth. And what does he say? He says, Israel, Israel, you have sinned. Read the first 12 chapters of Jeremiah. You've committed spiritual adultery. You've turned away from Yahweh and you've turned to false gods and you've worshiped them. The great verses 2, 12 and 13. Hear, O heavens, and, and, and see, earth, bear witness. My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, Yahweh, the fountain of living water, who would satisfy the soul. And they have turned from me, they've dug out cisterns, cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And then Jeremiah says, Israel, if you do not turn, Babylon is going to come in this city, and they are going to kill and exile the people. And the king says, Jeremiah, be quiet. You're destroying our people's morale. You're telling the soldiers that they're going to be killed if they continue fighting against Babylon. You're, you're wrecking. You are, you're a complete killjoy, Jeremiah. Stop. Stop preaching. Someone throw him in a pit. I want to hear a prophet who's going to tell me good news. They hire the false prophets. The false prophets show up. They say, shalom, shalom. Here are the words. You shall not see the sword. You will not have famine. I will give you assured peace in this place. The temple will not be taken down. The walls will not be destroyed. Babylon will not be defeated because God is with us and God will not let us be destroyed. And all the people rally around the false prophet because it sounds so good. But Jeremiah is speaking the truth. He says, listen, if you refuse to repent, God is going to do what he promised in Deuteronomy. If you break the covenant for centuries, God is going to exile you to a foreign land, which is exactly what you guys agreed on when you entered this covenant centuries ago. It may not be pleasant. The truth is not always pleasant, but it is the truth. And to stake our eternity on a lie, to, to live our life based on false teaching, is devastating to people. You may remember, uh, this is three, four years ago, maybe more than that, several years ago, we watched American Gospel Part One in this room. We watched it on this screen uh, on a Saturday morning. A number of you were probably there that day. Late in that documentary, You may remember they're talking about the prosperity preachers that are very famous on TV. I mentioned some of them just now. There's many names. And they're critiquing their seriously aberrant and false teaching. And there's this moment in the documentary, it gets me every time I have seen it. It gets me almost every time I've seen it emotionally. Justin Peters, who has, I think, cerebral palsy, has to walk with uh, crutches or in a wheelchair. Uh, He went to one of these crusades. He doesn't believe in their healing, but he went to one of their crusades and they refused to try to heal him because can't, and he shows documentation, pictures and images and video of parents, moms with dying children who have stage four cancer, and they go to the Benny Hinn crusade with the 30,000 people in the arena, and Benny Hinn is promising healing, and there's this mom picking up her child. In the video, they blur their faces out. This mother is picking her little child out of a wheelchair who's dying of cancer or whatever the disease is in that case, picking the child up, trying to bring the child to the stage, and they're waving them off. You know, you can't come up on the stage. Bad doctrine, false teaching like that, it devastates real people. It actually hurts real people. It dishonors God, it misrepresents the truth, and it damages people here and now, and it also damages people in eternity. Mark number five. Now listen to this. They often allow idolatry It's a mark of a false prophet. They often allow idolatry. Now they're subtle about it sometimes, but listen. You may remember Deuteronomy 13, do you remember this text? It's a a test on how to know if someone's a true or false prophet. In Deuteronomy 13, listen to this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, that makes him look real, right? He predicted something and it happens. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, but verse 5, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The mark of a false prophet, they allow idolatry in their teaching. Let me give another one, Jeremiah 23.13, in the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing they prophesied by Baal and led my pe- the people of Israel, my people, astray. Now, can I give you a more subtle way that that's done in today's teaching? Very rarely is someone going to say, worship Allah or worship money. Or, people usually know better today than to say it that bluntly. Today, I have found that one of the marks of false teaching when i've seen these guys i've watched them on youtube i've seen them talk about these things here's what i've noticed they will very often treat you as if your personal dreams i don't i don't mean like a visionary dream i mean like a dream for your life or a dream for your future they will often treat like your dreams and your deepest desires in your heart are automatically good and from god and should be pursued and that god is going to give them to you i'll give you i'm not going to say his name a very well known preacher about not that many years older than me said a few years ago Here's his his gospel presentation. They actually clipped this as as like a 30-second clip and actually put this on their website. Like they were proud of this moment, okay? They weren't just trying to hide this. He said this. This is what he said. Jesus died on the cross, and he came out of that tomb so that God could give you your dreams. Now, is it actually likely that one of the things I need most is for the idols within my dreams to be exposed and repented of? Do you know how often the ambitions for our lives are containing self-glorification? Think about it. the ambitions we have for life often are wrapped up in love of money or love of fame or love of career or whatever. I need first, before I pursue my dreams, I need first to see the deceptiveness of my dreams exposed. I need to see where self-glorification is wrapped up in my high thoughts of my future, and I need to repent of that. And then I can ask the Lord, okay, Lord, use me. Use me, but use me for your glory. Don't use me for my glory. You understand? Very often this preaching doesn't confront the idols in our own ambitions for ourselves. Instead, they baptize our ambitions. And they just say, God's going to give you your dreams. And I have found, you know, after listening to a lot of these people, I wrote down this simple phrase. Their teaching often revolves around something I have labeled, vague Optimism. Vague optimism. And just tell me if you don't discover this to be the case. What they say is they say things that aren't sufficiently clear. I don't know exactly what they mean, but they sound and feel really optimistic. They feel good. So here's here the kind of, God is going to take you to a whole new level next year. You heard this kind of stuff? You don't know what is waiting around that next corner. God is about to exalt you. Every setback is a setup for a comeback. Those are the kind of phrases you start hearing. And on and on, you hear these vague statements. You're not sure if you're honestly reading a fortune cookie or if you're hearing a sermon. And I'm not even kidding about that because very often the preaching sounds like just sort of vague, positive feelings. God's going to take you to a new level. This is the time. This is your time. Okay? I don't know what that means. Uh, so what we need is we need clear, biblically defined understandings of what we're talking about, and we need them to be, uh, per, have, have biblical parameters put around them. Otherwise, we may be preaching our idols without even knowing that's what we are doing. Number six, they twist Scripture. Now, let me pause here. I don't want us to get self-righteous. Any of us could be susceptible to any of these things. Let us not for one second think it's them only. It's, it's any of us could be susceptible to doing any of these things. Number six, they twist Scripture. You remember the temptation of Jesus in the desert? The devil said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Remember what he says? For it is written. And then he quotes from the Psalms: He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Scripture in his teaching. Do you think false teachers use the Bible? You better believe it. You know, I've had meetings with Mormons. I've had hour-long meetings with Mormons where they they were in our living room a few months ago. They came to our front door. I said, let's let's talk. And we go into our living room. We sit down. And they quote Scripture to me. They, They quote 1 Corinthians 15. They quote a whole set of verses that they, want to, that they want to reference. They will use Scripture, but we must know how Scripture is being used in context and where it is being misused. 2 Peter 3, Peter, remember Peter talks about Paul's letters? I love that verse. Peter, the apostle, talks about Paul's letters, and he says this, there are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, to which we all say Amen. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to, even Peter felt that way, which gives me hope, okay? If Peter's reading Romans going, there are some hard parts in here. We say, thank you, yes, there are. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, listen, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Notice that Peter just called Paul's letters Scripture, Paul's letters are being twisted as they do the other scriptures, which means Paul's letters were already considered scripture by Peter before Peter died, which is a big deal there. So you see this? They are twisting Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're twisting Paul's letters and other scriptures to lead to destruction, to bring us down the broad path that leads away from the true Christ. But then then Peter says this, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Point number seven, they often allow sexual immorality. They often allow sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to ask you to hold on here, because I'm going to read a lot of quick texts, okay? Just stick with me. Alright. I know when someone's reading it can be hard to follow, but just stick with me. I'm gonna read a bunch of passages really quickly. Jeremiah thirty, excuse me, twenty-three, fourteen. Quote, But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Were Sodom and Gomorrah known for sexual sin? Yes, did these prophets commit adultery? Yes, did they encourage people in their sin? Yes, sexual morality is often a mark of a false prophet. Jude chapter, well, it's just one chapter. Jude verse 4 says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, wolves in sheep's clothing, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality or lawlessness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, let me listen to that. These people creep in unnoticed. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are, Inwardly, they're ungodly, and they pervert the grace of God into a license for sexual sin. Have you, have you heard this before? I'm saved by grace, not by works. It doesn't matter how I live. Uh, let us sin that grace may abound, Romans 6.1. Paul says, by no means. Do, do not abuse the grace of God. Listen, people who take the grace of God and use it as a ticket for sexual sin do not know the grace of God. The grace of God, as has been said by others, is power, not just pardon. The grace of God, real grace that forgives is real grace that transforms. If you have met God in His grace, His grace will not leave you as you once were, Right? His grace will change you. If you have the exact same sexual sin problems that you had before conversion, after conversion, I don't know that you've had conversion. In fact, I would probably say more strongly, you probably have not had conversion. If you're saying, I'm, I'm in the same boat I was in. Nothing has changed. You need to test yourself. Is there repentance and hatred of sin? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and many will follow their sensuality. That's a word for sexual sin. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Later in that chapter, verse 14, listen, the false teachers, they have eyes full of adultery. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls You get that, right? A soul is trying to get out of sin and they're unsteady. They're on that tightrope. They're about to fall either towards God or away from God. They're about to go towards holiness or away from holiness. They're unsteady and they're enticing them. It's okay. God's grace will take care of it. It's fine. Come come this way. God's not against that sin. It's fine. He approves of that. Come here. We'll celebrate it. Come here. They're enticing unsteady souls. Let me finish that verse. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Do you hear that? I don't need to spell this out for you. You're smart enough to put the pieces together. I will just tell you, unless the Lord turns our culture around, I... Sadly, I genuinely, this is extraordinarily sad. I am fully persuaded that there will be prominent and well-known evangelicals who are going to embrace the LGBT agenda and will say that God approves of these things. That, that is going to be a telltale sign. See, when, there's an old quote that says, when the battle's being fought, the point at which the battle is fiercest is the place where you most need to be, right? A coward runs from the strong point of battle... Someone who's courageous goes towards the strongest point of the battle. We just did that whole cultural series in Sunday school for the last five or so, six months, and we dealt with the LGBT agenda and the critical theory agenda, and I believe that those two things are going to bring a lot of false teaching and already have into the church so that very well-known pastors who we grew up, some of us listening to and even liking years ago, are becoming less and less clear about homosexual sin in particular. They're, they're being deliberately, I think, ambiguous. They're not coming out with clear statements. They're encouraging pastors to not speak about it clearly. They're encouraging to, to not address it in interviews. One well-known pastor in the state of Georgia said that he will not say whether he believes same-sex relationships are sinful in an interview. He said, just listen to my sermon series on the topic. And when you go listen to the sermon series, which I've listened to some of, you will find that he is extremely ambiguous. And if I could just say here, I think this is a real thing going on right now. I get this from Todd Friel. Wretched Radio, he had this this, uh, little video which I thought was very insightful. He said this, he said that one of the things that he sees happening right now is something called, oh, I'm going to get the term wrong. Um, It is, um, oh man, deniable, plausible deniability. This was very insightful to me. So here's what he said. There are teachers, he has a video on this, there are teachers today who are doing this they're saying something in public that is deliberately hard to understand what their stance is. And it sounds, if you if you hold one view, it sounds like they're affirming that view. If you hold the other view, it sounds like they're affirming that view. And it's, it's, it's studied ambiguity. It's using language in such a way to be intentionally unclear to try to please both sides. And what happens is this, because the statement is unclear, there's plausible deniability. If you call the person on it, they say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't believe, I believe this, I've always believed this. What are you talking about? I've never said that. But you see what happens? In public, it sounds one way. In private, oh, I've I've always believed in inerrancy. I've never believed the Bible has errors. Well, why did you preach three sermons that implied the Bible had errors? So, it's plausible deniability. I think that's one way that teachers today who are slipping into falsehood are beginning to try to deal with the attacks that will come if you speak clearly on important moral issues of our day. All right, point number eight. They often deny God's wrath. They often deny God's wrath. Point number eight. You know what, what is it, the second thing that Satan says in the Bible? You will not surely die. That's a denial of God's punishment for sin, right? One of the most Satan-like things we can do is to say, living in that activity that the Bible calls sinful is not a big deal, and you will not surely die. It's okay. See, it feels loving in our world's eyes for someone to affirm you no matter what you believe or think or do. It feels so loving in our culture. And yet God says, it's not loving. Satan looked loving to Adam and Eve in one sense. He said, look, did God really say this? And would God really restrict? God sounds kind of restrictive. He doesn't want you to benefit from all these trees in the garden. This tree looks so delicious. It, you know, it, you know look, look at this fruit. Doesn't that fruit look good? Oh, it's, Eve says, it's pleasing to my eyes. Yeah, I bet it tastes great. But here's something else. Once you eat this fruit, you're going to become more like God. You'll be able to determine and know good and evil. It's going to be great. This is going to take you somewhere you never dreamed you'd go. God is holding out on you. This limitation, this thou shalt not around this one tree is God limiting you. And I'm here to free you. I'm here to give you what you really want. I'm going to take you to a whole nother level of experience. You'll be like God. And what Adam should have said was, why are you talking to my wife? And then he should have said, I'm going to get the little hoe out here and we're just going to take his head off. But before I do that, Adam should have said, snake, why are you talking? First of all, I'm a little confused by that. Second of all, he should have said, We already are like God in the way that God intended us to be like God. We were made in God's image and likeness, and we're meant to reflect God's character to this world, but we're not meant to become like God in the way that only God is like God. So how dare you offer an idol before us to exalt us to God's level, be gone Satan is what he should have done, but instead, he stood right there allowing his wife to be deceived and then following her in that particular sin. So sin looks so attractive it was pleasing to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. She took and ate. And listen, since that moment, every single tragedy in all the world's history has been a result, a direct result of that specific sin by Adam. So they often deny God's wrath. They say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. I just add, the doctrine of hell may be minimized or denied. And the idea that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross, which is the most precious doctrine in the whole of the Bible, perhaps, one of the most precious teachings in the Bible, propitiation, is denied. There are very sophisticated, very well-known teachers. I'll I'll name one because I've read a decent amount of him over the years. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, is a top-level scholar, brilliant man, and he essentially denies the doctrine that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross and mocks it when he speaks on it. Now, listen. That is an essential doctrine to the Christian life. On the the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It's in in Christ alone. And one denomination, PCUSA, very different from the PCA, uh, PCUSA, when they wanted to bring the in Christ alone into their hymn book, do you remember? They asked the the, uh, Gettys if they could change the lyrics to, on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They wanted to erase the doctrine of God's wrath right out of the hymn, and to their credit, Keith and Kristen Getty said, no, we will not let you edit out an essential part. So, let's be wary how they speak about God's wrath. I'm going to go one more, and then we will close the sermon. This is number nine. They speak, number nine, they speak like the world. This overlaps with previous points, but we'll close here. They speak like the world. The world. I want you to turn to this text. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, near the back of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 4. I'm not going to read all these verses, perhaps I'll read some of them. 1 John 4 verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Now just pause there. Do you see? The sign of a false teacher is they get Jesus wrong. Fundamentally get Jesus wrong. Verse 4. and the spirit of error. Just just one more time, verse verse 5. They are from the world, the false teachers. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Do you hear that? Those who aim to please the secular society, those who aim to please the unbelieving world, will lead themselves into false teaching, if that's their final goal. But the true teacher, verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. A sign of a a true teacher is not that they are trying to please the world or society, but that they are trying to speak truth whether in season or out of season. So, last thing I'll say. One of the best antidotes to false teaching is loving the truth. L- listen to this, this is from Second Thessalonians, L- listen to this. It speaks of those who will experience wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. It says, they will be condemned because they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you hear that? The number one way to not fall into serious doctrinal error is to saturate our minds in God's Word, to be around others who love God's Word and will challenge us to believe what is true, to listen to sound teaching and and and. Pastors who've stood the test of time, people who have long gone to heaven, who've written wonderful books, and as we soak our minds in the truth, we pray to God that the truth would pass through our mind as we understand it, down into our heart, and be shaped in our affections, and that we would have a love, a deep pleasure and love in the truth. And if you love the truth, you will be far less susceptible to falling into error. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, you gave us this warning through Jesus to beware of false prophets. For they come to us as wolves in sheep's clothing, ravenous wolves. But we will know them by their fruit, by their teaching, by what their teaching does. We will see it. Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment. Don't make us self righteous about the self righteous. Don't make us holier than thou about the false teachers. God, I pray that You would show us that apart from Your grace, we would believe far more error than we do. We only know the truth because of Your intervention and Your opening of our eyes to know and love the truth and so be saved. To go from thinking the gospel was boring, the Bible was so boring that we could barely make ourselves read the Bible, to now, by Your grace, loving Your Word, loving time in prayer enjoying you, enjoying your truth, and being deeply moved by the truths of the gospel. That God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These truths have a profound effect on us. We cherish the truth that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has caused his grief, that his soul has made, a, has made an offering for sin, and by his stripes we are healed eternally in Christ in the resurrection from the dead. Help us, God, to discern truth from error, to know the truth, to love the truth, to speak the truth, to pray it, to sing it, to guard it, protect it, and to share it with others. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.